Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Company's podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each episode showcases one of Davy's certified arborists sharing advice with everyone about caring for your trees and landscapes. We'll talk about everything from introduced pests, seasonal tree care, deer damage, how to make your trees thrive, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. This week, I'm joined by Zane Roddenbush. He's a turf grass and herbicide specialist for the Davy Tree Expert Company. It's part of our Smart Irrigation episode. And Zane, we're into July. We're talking about watering. Let's talk a little bit about the right way to water our lawn. That's that's a lot of area to water, though. To start off there, how do we get water to the grass? Yeah, this is a great Great topic. And, you know, from my standpoint, the, the questions are starting to funnel in from people out in, out in the field about what is the directive that we should be telling our customers to, to water properly. And it's, a, you know, it's a, it can be complicated, but it can also be, you know, somewhat simple, Doug. I think the, the reality is to recognize that water use is going to change, you know, throughout the season. And as we start to get into the, you know, the summer months, one, the temperature is elevated and two, Mother Nature just often the rainfall, uh, the time between rainfall events starts to be extended and just the amount that we get is, is reduced. And so there is, you know, soil moisture becomes limiting. And so, you know, how do you begin to tackle that? I think is, uh, I first start with what are your expectations? I think that that's a really key place to start is what are your expectations for your property? Because one of the things that I see sometimes is that uh, the expectations can be a little, I don't want to say unrealistic, but you could use a lot less water if you were just willing to um, maybe accept or tolerate a, a reduction in color, um, you know, potentially a little bit of reduction in quality we see can really result in a lot less water use, close to 70% in some of the studies that are published out there. And so I think that's the first place is, you know, what are your expectations for your property? If you're someone who, you know, expects it to be green all the time and really to be pretty plush, uh, you are going to have to be very, very judicious in terms of the amount of water that you put down and when you put it down. Or if you're someone who just says, you know, I just, I just want to maintain decent quality, uh, we would see that, well, then maybe you can get away with kind of some spot watering in between when Mother Nature does it. So I'm, I'm dancing around your question a little bit, but I think it's important to kind of get that out there right away that uh, let's face it, these plants go under a lot of stress in the summer months. And, and honestly, uh, I see sometimes people with irrigation systems would do themselves a favors by not running them, that they actually, they kind of exacerbate some problems through the use of their irrigation system, where if they just wouldn't have used it at all, um, you know, they actually would have resulted in better quality. So where do we go from here? You know, it, it depends. Do you have an in-ground irrigation system or are you moving hoses around your property to irrigate? You know, if you're if you're like me, who'd be a hose dragger? And I'll be totally honest with you. I don't water my lawn. Uh, I'm kind of that person who does accept that there will be some reduction in quality. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very interesting point about what you want out of your lawn. In my case, I just want it to stay alive. But if the culture of your neighborhood is such that every house has this nice lawn, that's where I think 
the water usage is 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 crazy uh you know uh so you said something interesting there about your grass that you're not watering yours but you you mentioned other species in there so talk a little bit about that that's that's really interesting to me yes yes so um you know what i lived in kansas for for six years while i was getting my master's and phd at kansas state university and in kansas one of the predominant turf grass species that they use is, is turf type tall fescue. And, um, you know, where we live in the Pittsburgh, Ohio area, uh, you will also see turf type tall fescue, but you'll see a lot of perennial ryegrass, Kentucky bluegrass, you'll see a lot of fine fescues. Um, and one of the things that turf type tall fescue does well is it has really good heat tolerances. It, you know, some of these grasses, it gets really hot will go under heat stress and you'll start to see a lot of necrotic leaves and they're just not going to tolerate that. And also tall fescue is a really deep rooter. It can produce much deeper roots than a lot of the other turf grass species can. It has Achilles heels though. It's a, it's a bunch type grass. So compared to something like Kentucky bluegrass that can produce rhizomes under the soil that help it spread and help it recover from traffic or dog urine stains or whatever it might be. Turf type tall fescue is a bunch type grass. So um, if you would come in there and, and divot it up or remove turf, it's not going to fill back in. So that's one of its Achilles heels and it's susceptible to a disease called brown patch. But in the summer months, it maintains really good color, much longer than those other species that I mentioned will from my experiences. And so uh, that was something that I did. I went through a renovation uh, last fall and, and turned the stand over and, and made it pretty much all turf type tall fescue. And so, um, so the color is there. Uh, when you look around to some of my neighbors, like my one neighbor has a fine fescue yard and it looks phenomenal in the spring months. It's a gorgeous lawn. Uh, but right now it's lost its color and it, it you know, it looks a little rougher, but, um, you know, it will recover when the, when the rainfall comes back. So, you know, definitely things about species are an important piece. I, I think that, and that's a whole more holistic conversation. Something our industry is looking very closely at actually is, is putting the right plant in the right place and kind of managing the expectations that might come along with it. So for instance, Kentucky bluegrass, it's my favorite grass. It's a phenomenal grass, great color, great density, the recuperative ability, but um, its mechanism for going through drought and heat conditions is it goes into dormancy. So this is a grass that can go dormant, that will lose its color. And then when the rainfall and the temperatures, you know, are more conducive, it will come out of this dormancy and, and really quite amazing how much recovery can happen there. So, you know, the, the differences in the species certainly can really influence what you might expect to see on your property. I mean, can I have a bunch of those different species in there? I mean, it sounds great that the one that you have that is it what is it called the tall turf type tall fescue and then that fine one sounds great for the spring and then kentucky bluegrass can i mix these all together or it doesn't work that way um yes you can mix together and it's often a recommendation it was actually what i attempted to do in my lawn a little bit was a poly stand so it's always good to have you know when you're going to plant grass there's a couple different recommendations one there's what's known as cultivars so you know 
my grass, although I say it's turf type tall fescue, there's actually five different cultivars okay. of turf type tall fescue. So those are unique genetic individuals. An idea there would be if one of those individuals is really susceptible to disease like brown patch, we're not going to lose the entire stand, you know, or, or whatever it might be. So you're kind of hedging your bet there. And then what I attempted to do was I actually seeded that with a mixture. I added uh 10% Kentucky bluegrass by weight to the mixture because I was hoping to get some established. The problem with Kentucky bluegrass is it, it's a it's a poor establisher. It's hard to get established from seed. And so if you look at my yard and get down there and look at the plants, it's all turf type tall fescue. And so to answer your question, you know, what plays well together? Uh, there's still, I don't think the verdict is out there, but you do have to be careful. Some of these uh, plants are very susceptible to similar diseases, leaf spots and pythium. And so, you know, can you mix them? Yes. You also have to be careful about the differences in the leaf color and texture. So for instance, the, the, you talked about the fine fescues like my neighbor has, that's a grass that really does great in the shade. I don't typically recommend the use of that grass in a full sun area because it will lose color in the summer months, but in the full shade, there's no better grass. In low maintenance areas where you don't want to mow, there's no better grass, but it has a very fine leaf texture. It looks like almost a, a pine needle, you know, uh, fascicles that they're very thin blades. And then you get them mixed with a blade that's coarser textured. A lot, it's been my experience that a lot of customers don't like, it's a lack of uniformity. So there's a lot to consider, Doug. Um, but to answer your question, they can be mixed. And if you would, you know, look at some of your local extension publications, you'd be able to find what those ideal mixtures are for, for your area. So. so all I want is green. I, I don't care yeah. about, I don't care about leaf, this, that. I just want green. But t talk a little bit about having your job and then having neighbors on either side with their lawns. Are they always asking you like, hey, how come yours is green now and mine isn't? You're not watering. What's going on with all this? Yes, yes. I get a lot of questions. Friends, families, and neighbors, you know, I always joke with people. That's the only time I get text messages, it seems like, for most of my families when there's a weed or something that needs ID'd in their yard. But, um, you know, you do get a lot of questions from from neighbors. And it's it's always interesting, actually, to see what some of the perceptions are, Doug, you know, in my field, to to listen to what people think and believe and where they got that information from. And it's it's always interesting to kind of sh to take them down the realm of where I'm headed that, you know, I'm all about trying to create a sustainable landscape. I really, uh, you know, I want the color too. You know, it's my profession. I, I want my property to show that I have that expertise, but at the same time, I have a family with kids and, and uh, my time is spent doing other things. And uh, so I'm all about trying to get my landscape to be more sustainable. And I do that through, you know, great cultural practices of, uh, the proper mowing height, the proper mowing frequency, you know, addressing soil issues, as I mentioned, trying to get the ideal species, what I felt like was correct for my yard. And so, you know, there's a, a theme sometimes when I go, so it's not uncommon for me where we have customers, you know, who's, uh, I shouldn't say it's not uncommon. It does happen, unfortunately, where we have customers whose properties, you know, aren't up to what they want it to be, to their standards. And we go visit those properties and you sometimes just see some inherent issues that there might not be any topsoil. That's one of the most common things I see in the urban landscape is that, you know, people build houses and what those contractors do is they come in and they scrape off all the topsoil into a pile. They build your house 
and they try to respread that topsoil as evenly as they can across the property, but it's never perfect. And there are places literally where there is no topsoil and turf grass plants really are not gonna grow in what we call subsoil. It's pretty much devoid of any nutrients. The physical properties aren't conducive. And so what do you do for a customer like that? That's a, to talk about soil modification, but ultimately uh, to fix that problem, we can't fertilize, we can't irrigate our way out of an issue like that. And so I'm always trying to get people to see that, you know, if there is a, a reduction in quality, what is the true underlying cause? You know, um, I think too often people are very quick to, to pull a sprinkler or to fertilize their way out of a problem that really uh, could be related to a soil or a shade issue. I mean, um, you know, trees, uh, tree shade is a really difficult place to grow quality turf grass under because the light that reaches the turf grass canopy has already had a lot of the energy taken out from the tree leaves. And so, um, so those are the things that I focus on and try to educate people that, um, you know, one, I sometimes see in some of these properties to let someone know, like, you have a really challenging property to grow quality turf grass. In. I mean, a beautiful property, you know, and it has all these different things, but there are, you know, there's, you have to have a little bit of a give and take. If you have a property that's got 15, you know, hundred year old pin oaks on it um, that are gorgeous trees, um, maintaining a plush lawn underneath of that, you know, that's where the expectations need to be managed a little bit. And that's where we might say, well, let's, let's come and introduce the, the correct species. Uh, maybe it's, you know, if they planted a bunch of Kentucky bluegrass, that's going to have powdery mildew issues and we could go towards a different species. So, you know, to answer your question, I just keep coming back to what, you know, culturally, what do we, what can we do to put the plant in the best position possible to maintain good quality? So let's get back to our watering. Yes. Yeah. We've digressed there a little bit. Well, let's, we'll get back to it. We're going to talk, I think we're going to talk for a long time about lawns today because we've got a lot of stuff to, to cover. And, and I love this information. I'm a hose dragger too, but is there a specific, if we're going to water that lawn, let's say we've got a decent lawn, we've got some decent soil there, we're interested in keeping it green all year long if possible, uh, is there a certain time of the day that's best to water? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, the time and the frequency are, are two important factors. You know, So for a hose dragger like myself, I think you are best to really focus your efforts on what you said, the curbside appeal. Um, and so, you know, if you had to divvy up your, your resources and your time, I would focus on that front yard piece. And then from there, you know, the ideal time, in my opinion, would be any time between the hours of 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. And, you know, there is a much wider window than that. You know, per, I would say any time from probably 11 p.m. all the way to 10 a.m. is your true water window but that's not really realistic for many of us. So, you know, when you get up in the morning and you have that cup of coffee, get your, get your hose out and water. And there's a few reasons that that time is ideal. Um, the times you want to avoid is certainly in the, right in the middle of the day, uh, we're going to see one, a lot of that water will be lost to evaporation just because of the heat. And water has a relatively high, what's called specific heat. Uh, the specific heat of water is, it's pretty unique water in general. So one, it takes a lot of energy to change uh, the temperature of water by one degree. So a lot of energy is required to do that. But once the wa water temperature is increased, it holds that energy. 
And so by irrigating in the middle of the day, you actually will see that you can raise the soil temperature somewhat significantly by, mm. by irrigating. And so the middle of the day is really a no-no. And then the other time that we want to avoid is in the late afternoon. So several of the turf grass diseases require a specific amount of what's called leaf wetness period. And so you think about leaf wetness, when you walk out in your yard in the late evenings with no shoes on, you can feel the dew that's beginning to form on the leaves. That would begin the period of leaf wetness. And so that's typically going to be, you know, in the summer months, somewhere around that 930, 9 o'clock time frame. Um, so irrigating kind of anywhere probably between that 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. time frame, what you end up doing is you wet the leaf blades and there's not enough time for the leaf blades to dry and you end up extending the period of leaf wetness. And several diseases require 10 to 12 hours of continuous leaf wetness. And so, you know, the late evening and the middle of the day would be the times to avoid. Ideally, I like to see people doing it in the morning. Um, there's very little wind during that time, and you're able to, one, watch the system and move things around. And so, one, that would be the ideal time, Doug, would be early in the morning. And then if you do it early in the morning, those blades will have a chance to dry out too, right? Correct. Yep. So, you know, you're one, there's there's going to be dew on the leaf blades already. So the leaf wetness piece is kind of null at that point. And in fact, we actually see that um, irrigating can... Uh, knock that dew off of the leaf blades sometimes and actually decrease the leaf wetness period. So there there are a lot of benefits to, to irrigating at that time frame. Next question, how often and how much? <laughs> There's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> you know, it, this is another one that I th you could probably get away with, you know, during the true heat of the summer months. Uh, I think you could probably get away with twice a week, but the tr you might see a standard recommendation of, of irrigating three times a week. And, you know, that that will be related to what is the uniformity of your irrigation system and how much did you water? And, you know, if you can get those things dialed in, you probably could be twice a week. But, you know, you know, I typically see people are more like three times a week. And so, you know, how much? This is the great question, you know, and in, and in an ideal world, if you had a crystal ball, you would supply the turf grass plants with just what they need and nothing more, right? Anything, anything additional is kind of a waste. And, you know, the way that we can measure that is we have several different methods. We can look at the soil moisture. Um, we can look at what the weather forecast is and was. So through the process of what's known as evapotranspiration, um, we can actually somewhat estimate how much water was used by the turf grass plants that day. And so the standard recommendation is that turf grass plants will use about an inch of water per week. And this is where for most homeowners, we can, I don't want to lose anybody here, but the reality is we don't speak about irrigation in home lawns enough in terms of the amount of water. It's all on time. Right. Because those irrigation timers are all based on time, how many stations and how much time and even us uh, moving these hoses around, you know, I, I put it in 20, 20 minutes in, in each spot. But the reality is we would love to know how much water through the use of catch cups and we could go down through the through an irrigation auto. But the reality is um, we don't have that much time uh, for a lot of people. But that is the true way, Doug, if you said how much 
I mean, it's a loaded question, but the reality is you really would need to know how much water that sprinkler puts out and to actually capture some of that. And that can be done relatively easy with just cans and, and setting them out and irrigating and then going back and looking at how much water was collected and, you know, doing some simple math. So, you know, putting out anywhere, um, you know, three tenths to a half inch of water each irrigation cycle would be close to ideal. So, you know, if you're having runoff and things, that's, that's too much. So, you know, if you have steep slopes, you might have to do what's, uh, you know, we call it um, soak cycles where you, you water just to the point of where you're about to have runoff and you stop. So, you know, maybe the rest of your lawn that's relatively flat, you can run cycles for, you know, 20, 30 minutes a piece, but on a steep slope after 10 minutes, you're generating runoff. That's, that's not good for our business. So that might be a situation where you have to run it for 10 minutes, let something else run, come back and run it for another 10. So, Well, I like the idea of, of putting that catch can there, whether it's a tuna can or whatever it might be, you know, put that in place, run the sprinkler. And when that thing's filled up to an inch, we know we've got the water. So we're assuming we're on a flat. Uh, we've, the, we've given the grass what it needs, right? Correct. Correct. And, you know, they're, this is where our industry Doug, the reality is our industry is under scrutiny for water use. Not so much here in our area, but you start to head out west. I mean, you hear about sure. people being paid to take to take turf grass out of their lawns and et cetera. And that's a whole nother conversation. But make no mistake about it. Um, uh, our industry has recognized that water and how we manage water is a huge part for us. And the reality is not everybody, you know, has all this training to make these really informed decisions. And so the thing that's coming down the pipeline is just the use of data and technology and smart controllers. And I think uh, the data is out there already that, and this is getting away from the dragging hose conversation versus people that have actual in-ground sprinklers, but uh, we see just massive reductions, 50, 60, 70% on the regular basis in terms of, of, the, of the water reduction that we're able to make. But in terms of someone dragging hose, you know, how do you really know how much water you put out there? I mean, unless you use these cups, it's kind of a guess. And, and if you're guessing, you know, I always tell people you can always put more down. You can always add more, but once it's down, you can't take it away. And so, you know, in terms of irrigating, you'd be better off to err on the side of too little because you can always come back the next day and put it down again. Um, but once you start over irrigating, that ends to a whole other slew of problems. Um, it creates anaerobic soils. Um, we get reduced rooting, disease issues, uh, you know, that, a lot of thatch production. So it's an important tool. This is a, you know, it's a, it, it, it seems like it would be simple. And unfortunately, I'm somebody who can probably make it overcomplicated. And it, and it is simple, but at the end of the day, if you don't know how much water you've put out, you are guessing. And so to take the time to set a cup or two out, I mean, if you're doing that, you're you're a step far a step ahead of, of what I see a lot of people do. Great stuff, Zane. We're out of time for this week, but you and I are going to keep talking for part two of this podcast, where we'll discuss more about having a great lawn. Remember to tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster, reminding you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer.